I'm not going to ask you about music. You're a big pro wrestling fan. I want to know about that. I am, Alex. So when I was in college, uh, it all started because uh, one of my roommates broke up with her boyfriend who had gotten her into pro wrestling. And so being the fantastic roommate that I am, uh, when she came to me and said, well, I just, I just want to have somebody to watch wrestling with this week. And I said, okay, I'll sit down and watch with you. And we watched, and I was like, this is very strange. And then the next week, I'm like, well, I want to find out what happened. So, and then, you know, that's, that's how they get you. Okay, good for you. psychopathic killing machines and they've vowed and they've made their volunteer effort to dare to care to try to improve the quality of life for their neighborhood but they're not selfish they're not into this I and me thing they believe in the concept of us and we and that's why they're here so I'd first like you to introduce you to a man who is our national coordinator who has been busting his shoes for many years who I met many, many years ago.
young man at that point obviously reached out and touched and felt that positivity that was emerging from us as opposed to the negativity of where he was at that point. Hey, welcome to Every Night's a School Night. We finally made it. We finally have the July episode, and it's July 31st, so don't listen to any lies or rumors that suggest this episode came any time after July. Just another month where we barely escape those secret police breathing down our back, those secret police who hunt down podcasters who don't release podcasts when they say they will. Uh, but yeah, we, we escaped that executioner's axe one more time. Sort of like in the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when the protagonist and some of the other merry men, merry men are about to be hanged. And, you know, right at that crucial moment when the executioner kicks the barrels out from underneath them, you know, turns out, uh, or no, it's, it's Robin Hood. He's, he's not one of the people being hanged, but he shoots the arrow, of course, that cuts through the ropes of the merry men being hanged. And they, of course, live. They are saved in the nick of time. They are saved in the nick of time, and that's what we did. We saved ourselves in the nick of time, yet again. So yeah, you just listened to In Order, In Order of Appearance, Pasquale Terrafo, Pasquale Terrafo, uh, with Stefania. It's the female version of the name Stephen. Stefania. And that was followed by uh, the similarly named Curtis Sliwa. And I should say, too, Pasquale Tarafo, uh, his he was known for playing, I believe, what was called a guitar harp or a harp guitar. But I'm going to go with guitar harp. It sounds a little bit better to me. There's no real good way to make those two words sound good together. A harp guitar. Guitar harp. Guitar harp harp guitar. Uh, I've been to that country. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Pasquale Tarafo, he was known for playing this very strange and huge guitar-like instrument, primarily a guitar, an acoustic guitar, but it had this sort of harp built on the top, and it's huge. I really, I recommend looking up a picture. Just look up Pasquale Tarafo, T-A-R-A-F-F-O, and you'll see a picture of it. It's very bizarre, and it needs a stand at the bottom so that the guy can even hold it. And, you know, he existed, you know, he was way back when, I don't know, before video. I'm not even sure if they had recordings then, but this recording is credited to him, so it's definitely his composition, and it sounds old, so I believe he was alive long enough to at least record this. Uh, but there are no videos of him playing, to my knowledge. I'd have to look up when he actually died. I should have done my research. I feel like I can't use that accent now that I've sampled an individual using it, but no, nothing's going to stop me. But Pasquale Tarafo, uh, I think he died long before video was a thing, but I've watched videos of people playing a very similar, if not exactly the same, style guitar harp, harp guitar. And uh, it's strange. I don't completely understand like why they even need the harp aspect, aside from the fact that it looks bizarre, dreamlike, and cool. And it just seems like it probably makes really cool sounds. And occasionally they'll hit notes on the harp in addition to the guitar. But as you heard on that opening track, it primarily sounds like just someone who's doing really cool shit on a guitar. A harp guitar? That just sounds like people doing cool shit on a guitar. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that was, yeah, Pasquale Tarafo was followed by Curtis Sliwa. 
I believe that's how you pronounce it, uh, Curtis Sliwa. And if you're not familiar with who that is, he created the he created the Guardian Angels. Who, if you've been to events where they are at, they are the people who wear those little red berets and red jackets. Maybe it's more of a crimson. It's not red. It's crimson, like blood. Guardian Angels wearing red, crimson. Uh, but they came about, like, you think about movies from the 80s and the way, like, grimy New York is depicted. Like, the best example I could come up with is, uh, like, Teenage Mutant, the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Like, they depict New York in this really grimy way, especially for a kid's movie. And everything you heard was, you know, the subways were a mess. You know, people were getting robbed left and right. Getting robbed up, down, left and right. Uh, but uh, Curtis Sliwa created the Guardian Angels, which were a volunteer group who would go out and just stand around in their crimson red jackets and berets. And uh, I guess just kind of not be police, but just kind of have like a, a presence of safety. They were people you could go to. I've seen them myself uh, at like fairs, at festivals, that type of thing. It's been many years, but I remember going to a festival as a kid and seeing them. But he, of course, is a, a fucking madman, a total lunatic. Uh, and he had a radio show back in the early 90s. And he was super against the mafia, of course. I mean, he runs a volunteer group who's fighting crime. Uh, but he had done some things like he had staged like some fake beatings of himself. Like he did some publicity stunts to make it seem like these criminals were out to get him. Uh, and like, to make his organization seem that much more important. It's like, you know, my crime fighting volunteer group, you know, is so important that they want to get me. They want to beat me up. You know, it's like that sort of attitude. And people do that all the time. I mean, it happened just recently with that actor, uh, you know, where he staged a, 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 an assault on himself. And uh, Curtis Sliwa did it too. Uh, but it's, it's really a classic example of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, with a little added element of Little Red Riding Hood, because he wears red. <laughs> His little red jacket and beret might as well be a Little Red Riding Hood, but he's also the boy who cried wolf, because he staged these beatings, so he basically ruined his credibility. But he had a talk show in New York City, on New York City radio, and one of the just main targets of his rants uh, was the Gaudis, you know, who were running the Gambino family at that point in the Mafia. I didn't know what you were talking about until you said mafia. Thanks for clarifying. Uh, but no, he rallied against them and he was just very critical. And, you know, the U.S. mafia has rules against not harming journalists. Maybe not rules, but it's a basic guideline. They've certainly done it in decades past. But, they, you know, they try not to mess with journalists and they don't mess with police. You know, it's just, it just it would bring too much heat on them. So they generally don't mess with those people, no matter what they say. But Curtis Salewa was just rallying against them and targeting the Gotti family personally. And uh, later, a, a turncoat came, came out, a high-ranking member of that group, testified that, you know, the, the Gottis just were so livid about this Curtis Salewa's rants that they ordered a beating of him. And he was beaten, and then he kept doing the rants. He kept targeting the Gotti family, he kept making up, you know, I think he was mocking them, doing everything he could on radio. And so uh, Junior Gotti, the son of John Gotti, ordered another beating, a more severe beating. But somewhere, you know, wires got crossed, 
and they they tried to kill him. And this is this is real. This wasn't one of his staged beatings. This wasn't anything like that. This has been confirmed by uh, government witnesses from the mafia and everything. And so he was, uh, well, he would get a taxi cab every morning in front of his apartment, and so the mafia like knew this, and they sent two of their guys in a fake taxi cab that had been outfitted with a secret compartment in the front passenger seat, so you couldn't see someone hiding up there. So he thought he was just getting into a taxi cab with a, a regular old driver. And he got in the back, and as they were driving, the guy in this hidden compartment, and, you know, I've never seen any photos of this. I have no idea how it actually worked, but I've seen a number of descriptions of it. So I don't know how you can hide a person, a grown man. You know, I know mafia guys are short, but I don't know how you could hide a grown man, you know, somehow under the front console by the passenger seat. I don't understand. But anyway, a guy popped out of there and he started shooting Curtis Sliwa. Sliwa was able to get out the window of the car or something like that. And this all really happened. It's been confirmed. But it's a great example of the boy who cried wolf because it's like he spent all this time trying to cultivate this image of a victim for himself, this person who's been targeted. And then finally he does get targeted. And I don't remember if there were any convictions related to that. I feel like the shooter might have gotten convicted. But... I don't remember, but either way, he's a blowhard, and it's funny to listen to him. Uh, it was that was him giving some speech a couple years ago, and that followed Pasquale Tarafo, and then that was followed by a guy named Phil Minton. Curtis Sliwa introduced Phil Minton, and Phil Minton is not someone I'm a fan of, but I came across him some time ago, and he does this like vocal free jazz, like what you heard, all those vocal noises were not me. I'm hoping that people who are listening to this thought that was me just finally just being the biggest fucking idiot I could possibly be. Like I'm not, I'm not even going to try to do those vocalizations. Uh, you know, I can't possibly, you know, follow a professional like Phil Minton anyway. But yeah, if you can imagine that that went on for, you know, another minute and a half, but it's him sitting in a chair and he's an older man, like kind of balding, gray hair, definitely in his well into his sixties, I would say maybe older. And he's sitting in a chair with his eyes closed in an art gallery in Germany, making those vocalizations. And it's considered some form of like improvisation, free jazz. And, you know, I'm into experimental music. It's not even that I'm like against what that guy's doing. You know, it's like, he shouldn't be doing that. People shouldn't be watching that. I mean, I I think you could make a valid argument that way too. (laughs) Uh, But it's just, it was just too funny to me. Like that this is serious. Like he's sitting in a chair seriously doing that. And the really crazy thing is like, the more that I've listened to him doing that, the more I'm just like, it is actually impressive that he does all that with his voice. You know, it it actually is impressive that he, he's able to make those sounds. I mean, not to say that we couldn't all make those sounds if we wanted to, but I guess there's something impressive about him just getting into it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it was good. Uh, So here we are with the, the July 31st episode. Don't let anybody tell you it's August yet. Yesterday I went to Mount Rainier, which is just beautiful. I mean, they named so many things in this region after it uh, for good reason. You know, it's like the biggest, whitest thing <laughs> in, in the entire, uh, probably in the entire state. And it just looms there, but uh, you just can't avoid it. 
but I, I was there and that's always a cleansing sort of experience when you go, even there, even there were tons of tourists and stuff, but it was like, everybody was there to admire the mountain. And I think that's a cool form of tourism. Like I'm someone who never wants to be around crowds ever. Like if I go to a park or something and I'm the only person there, I'm just thrilled. Uh, but that said, like when, when everybody is focused on appreciating the same thing, there is something tolerable, if not cool about that. And so being at the mountain and being in a tourist, touristy area, it was neat because everybody's worshiping that fucking mountain up there, that effing mountain. I can't, no matter where I look, I can't not look at the mountain. I'm sick of the mountain. No, I'm not, never be sick of the mountain. It was beautiful. And it really cleansed me. But then this morning, I felt like like I didn't consume any kind of media, any kind of like internet, anything for, you know, all of yesterday and, you know, concluded the night at a friend's house on, at a fire pit. And here's, here's my diary entry. Uh, you waited this long for a school night episode, but it's just going to be a, a diary entry. The beginning was all a ruse. Led you in with, you know, there's just wonderful samples, <laughs> wonderful sounds. And it's just going to be another diary episode. No. No, but coming back and like then being hit this morning, like turning on the computer and just all that for the first time, it was just kind of, I was everything I could possibly consume just rubbed me the wrong way. And it's funny how when you get out into nature like that, and I, you know, I, did, I wasn't able to hike deep or anything like that, just had a nice little walk checking out the mountain, but a uh, nice little walk checking out the mountain. Uh, but, you know, there is something dreamlike about it, which is funny considering that's like the barest you know, most, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's the most direct experience with the natural world that you can have is being in a place that's completely untouched, you know, and that vast where you see nature on that vast of a level. Cause looking around at the different mountains and looking just the valleys, everything from that high up, I just, the, the phrase came to me, you know, this is the language of vastness. You know, there's something being fucking communicated here. Uh, but there is something kind of ethereal too about it. Considering you're, you're around like solid, you know, there's this big, huge thing of solid ice and rock in front of you and everything's huge. Rocks are big. The trees that are that far up in that thin air are just like, they're tough. They're small. They're weird. They're not like the trees you see when you're, you know, down, you know, where I live normally, but they're like, you can just tell they're tough trees. They're fighting through that limited oxygen, but there is something kind of ethereal about it too, something atmospheric. And lately, uh, last few years really, I don't really drive anywhere without the Cocteau Twins in my car. And I feel like that's a good tie-in with that ethereal sort of uh, thought. I mean, the Cocteau Twins, some of the best ethereal music really. I feel like they define that word on a sonic level. And Cocteau Twins, I've been a fan for a while, uh, you know, since, you know, over 10 years. 12, 13 years, probably. I don't know. I don't track these things. Uh, but I feel like especially in the last few years, just driving to the Cocteau Twins is necessary in my life. So I'm going to play a song here off of Treasure. And then that is going to be followed up with Depeche Mode, Stories of Old. I spoke about the Depeche Mode in the last night school, so it's only fitting that I play Stories of Old. And, you know, that's a thought I had looking at that fire last night. S stories of old. The original story is how I would describe a fire pit. It was the first story that man really told this thing. It was the first form of TV. You know, back when I was a kid, we didn't have TV. We had fire. <laughs>
first time I went there, it was in the middle of winter in the 80s. And I said to my father, Chester was from the south side of Chicago recently. I said, Dad, I got to tell you, I think it's time for you and Mom to move. I'll do everything within my power to make that transition for you. And my father looked at me and said, oh, you're a tough guy? Let me tell you, the Santini brothers are not going to move me, only Guarino's funeral home, and it's going to be feet first on a gurney. Father always said a man should only speak after a very sharp synth note. My father said, you ain't going to take me out of this neighborhood until I hear a very sharp synth note, like the kind you'd hear at the end of a Depeche Mode song, because I'm just in that kind of Depeche Mode mode. Stupid joke. 
Depeche Mode Mode. Uh, next, we're going to be playing a little bit of rock and roll. And I'm not someone who considers myself a rock and roll fan, really, you know, despite a lot of the music I'm into having that rock and roll bass of guitars and bass and drums and vocals, you know. I don't like that traditional, you know, even the 1950s, an era I love, 1960s. I don't really really love that original rock and roll sound. I like the ballady side of it. I like when they got sweet or sad, but I don't know what it is about just straight up rock and roll for rock and roll's sake that I don't really like. But over the years, I have gotten more into hard rock. And of course, you know, being a teenager and stuff, I was into a lot of quote unquote hard rock, you know, that broad brush, that hard rock, that all encompassing hard rock, like a mountain. Uh, you know, what's what's bigger than a mountain? Hard rock. The genre of hard rock is bigger than a mountain. They're the same thing. Uh, but yeah, this is a band I got into some time back, Winterhawk, early 80s. And I'd put them in the same category as Thin Lizzy. You know, at times I get these little, uh, you know, I don't know what they are, just little, a feeling like, oh, is this, am I like on the edge of listening to Rush if I listen to this? That's how I feel sometimes listening to uh, this particular Winterhawk album, but great band. I would say in the same category as Thin Lizzy. That's not to say they sound like Thin Lizzy, but I would say the the way they approach hard rock, it's not quite metal. It's not quite what you would hear from metal bands who are active around the same time, but I feel like it does kind of, I don't know, it fills in some sort of gray area, and the lead guitars in particular, I think, are what make it kind of almost heavy metal, but not quite, but... I would definitely say this is hard rocking music. Hard rock. Hardrick. Hardrick. Excuse me. Come here, Hardrick. Uh, but, uh, yes. Oh, man. I don't know how I'm going to recover from that joke. <laughs> uh, especially because I was like, that is probably the name of an actual character in like Game of Thrones or something or Harry Potter. Game of Thrones or Harry Potter, it makes no difference to me. I don't know the difference. That's my new thing. That's my new old man thing. I don't know the difference between Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. <laughs> like an old man sitting there watching Harry Potter and saying, is this Game of Thrones? Or watching Game of Thrones and saying, is this Harry Potter? <laughs> but Winterhawk, yeah, Native American themed. I believe the band members were natives. Because it's not too heavy handed. It seems like it's just kind of an... Uh, you know, a core part of their identity, and they do have some Native American-isms. Native Americanism. They do have some, you know, Native American-isms in there. Uh, some, you know, on some songs you'll occasionally hear like a like a drum intro that kind of brings that to mind, a war drum. I can't think of the exact uh, song offhand, but I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in this stuff, guys. I just like the album. But this first song here should really kind of change things because, you know, I'm playing all that depressive, uh, you know, I'm playing this like ethereal music and this sort of like weird, dark, not quite depressive, but still in that territory Depeche mode. And what kind of person does that in the summer? What kind of person does that? And so I'm going to play something that's a little more upbeat. And this song is way upbeat for me. It's called... Uh, uh, you can't see the forest through the trees or for the trees. And it's a very driving, rocking song. But it's pretty scathing and down-to-earth, too. It's scathing in a down-to-earth way, just like fire. Uh, just like what your grandpa used to watch before they had TV, the fire. Uh, so there's something kind of, you know, you know in your face about the lyrics of the song. I like it, calling somebody out. 
uh, for classism. It's a song about how classism interferes with romance. I'm going to write my senior thesis on it. I'm going to do my high school senior project on that. Uh, but no, Winterhawk's a good band, and I think the Native American aspect is really cool. I think it fits their band, and I always kind of like that. I don't know. I'm not somebody who's like, a, you know, I live in an area where there's, you know, a lot of Native American culture, and I, I've had family members who are kind of involved with, you know, the tribal uh, tribal affairs, I guess you could say. So it's it's not something that's totally foreign to me. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's always been around, I feel like throughout my life, I've always seen, you know, living in the Pacific Northwest, you see a lot of Native American artwork. You see a lot of places that are, you know, you know, trying to do some, trying to at least compensate for what happened to them. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we do a little bit of a better job around here than others. Uh, but uh, Winterhog, very good, very rocking music. I'm going to play two songs from their album Revival from the early 80s. Forest Through the Trees, the bouncing one, uh, about roman- romantic classism. Oh, this is one of those songs about romantic classism. And the next song is called Revival. And it kind of plays into what I was saying about like how uncomfortable I am with like rock and roll, especially because it's so self-referential. I think that's something that always takes me out where it's like one, two, three o'clock, you know, happy day song. But it, it always references like rock around the clock or rocking this and that rock and roll. It's just rock and roll. But there's nothing rock and roll bands love more than singing about rock and roll and how they're playing rock and roll. And yeah, that sort of self-referential element almost always takes me out. It's very rare that someone of any genre can reference the genre itself. I think about, you know, there, it does happen. I can think of some times where bands get really fucking, you know, they break down that fourth wall in a good way. But uh, rock and roll just doesn't really do it because it's, it's almost too accessible. It's just like, well, you know what? Like I'm doing it for rock and roll. It's just so empty. But that said, this song, the second song by Winterhawk Revival, has those exact type of lyrics in it. You know, soul, uh, you know, I sold my soul to rock and roll, but it makes me fucking believe it. I think that's what it comes down to. You can sing about rock and roll. You can be super self-referential about it. Uh, but if you do it with conviction, it actually makes me, as someone who's averse to those sorts of lyrics, that sort of style of expressing your your music, you know, it even gets me and makes me think, you know, like when I hear Winterhawk sing these lyrics, I'm almost like, you know what? Maybe rock and roll is it. Maybe rock and roll is what I've been missing. Maybe I'm a rock and roll guy. Winterhawk, Forest Through the Trees and Revival. Too long you've been going out with people 
See, what you got to do is you got to you gotta fade it out. You just got to fade it right out. Just fade that sucker right out. Yep, just like that. Yep. That's how you produce. That's how you handle a mixing board. Let me tell you what. That's how you handle a mixing board. That's how a guy handles a mixing board. He fades it out. Um, I'm faded. I'm feeling very faded. We're going to keep the summer vibe going. And nothing really makes me feel like summer except, you know, quote-unquote hair metal. Something, you know, I'd, I'd say my taste in it, you know, it's, you know, it's not like I'm a hair metal person. It's not like that's me. I'm, that's my people, my people. You know, I, I was born too late. I should have been that type of person. But I do take it somewhat, you know, sincerely. I don't listen to the limited hair metal, quote unquote hair metal. I mean, I just, I don't know what you'd call it. Glam. I, I don't really care. It's all rock and roll to me. It's all rock and roll to me. It's like the classic old guy saying, you know, as new genres come out, it's all just rock and roll. You know, in my day, we just called it all rock and roll, rock and roll. Um, but I'd consider Vixen rock and roll, 1988. This sound, nothing sounds more like 1988 to me than Vixen. And I love that first Vixen, that Vixen self-titled album. And if you're driving around on a nice summer day listening to that Vixen self-titled, you're having a pretty good day, I hope. You're at least trying. I don't feel like anybody would drive around on a nice summer day listening to Vixen who wasn't at least trying to make the most of that day, the most of that adventure. And this is one of the more just overwhelmingly catchy songs from that album, and it's called Love Made Me. Love made me, baby. Uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't make myself. Love made me. Love made me, but Vixen, yeah, it's that sort of music, you know, it's like they have songs on that album too that reference rock and roll. There's just something about rock and roll bands where they just can't seem to resist. It's just so tempting. It's just, it's like hovering in front of them and they're looking for lyrics and they're looking for topics to sing about and they see rock and roll just there. And Vixen's guilty of that as well, but when you make songs like this, uh, you know, you're not going to get convicted. You're not going to get convicted in my court. It's strange to me how there aren't more kangaroo courts. You hear about that sometimes. Oh, they, they, uh, they put together a kangaroo court. It's almost like a village. It's very tribal. It's like, you know, the, just the citizens get together on their own and the elder speaks up and some, you know, and you basically have a, an impromptu trial for somebody. You know, I'm surprised that doesn't happen more often, but I guess it did happen a lot over the, over history, and there's a reason why we don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, witch hunts and all of that, all kinds of things. Due process. But yeah, Vixen, if, if they were to be on trial, you know, if they were to be on trial in this given moment, I think I'd, uh, I'd say not guilty, no matter what love made them do. I'm looking for a nice girl from New Jersey, preferably up north New Jersey, north central Newark area. Be nice. Well, that's the thing with we live. Everybody's got their nails done. So I have to have mine done. You gotta be with the fling, you know? You gotta do what you gotta do. But it doesn't, and they're all fake. <laughs> they are? Yeah. My Maybe I got two. Maybe I got two real ones. If you ask me, women always have a strike up on men. We've always got our bodies, if you keep them in shape. And you've always got the check to cash, no matter which way you look at it. Hey, 
it's, you can come up on the boardwalk and just meet somebody like that, you know, in a split second. And like, it can turn into a serious relationship, like me and Jana. Because it's like- It's different. Yeah, you know, I, I met her a couple of weeks night. ago, but we hooked up tonight together and like, I'm probably gonna be with her for the rest of the summer. It's different every night. You and never know what's night, gonna happen. It's different. You can stay together forever, or it's different. And whatever happens, happens, but it's different. Every night, and you meet new people, it's the summer. I think. Yeah, no idea where it went. Like, sort of in the right direction, but not exactly. So we waited, like, four months later, it just came naturally. That's my first activity. I like smart guys and, like, funny guys. People with, like, a personality. I don't care if they're, like, good looking or anything, as long as they treat me right. <laughs> I care about looks. <laughs> That's all she cares about. They could, no. be, they could like, Kick her in the head, she won't care. Ooh, he's good looking. <laughs> Have you seen her face? She's got a face that could stop a clock. And with the face, I sure won't stop. If it needs to be said, that was Cheap Trick 
with he's a whore. Whether he's referring to himself, I don't know. That's another one of those problems I have with rock and roll. Uh, you know, since this episode is all about dissecting rock and roll. Uh, but one of those issues is lyrics tend to be very, a little more vague and a little more poetic. And that was something you saw, you know, once everything went through the grinder of the late 1960s. They were all on drugs. They're writing about drugs. That becomes a way for kids to understand adulthood through music. You know, I remember being on the playground and the whispers about songs. There'd be songs on the radio, new songs on the alternative radio station. And kids on the playground would be like, you know, that song's about drugs, right? You know what that song's about? It's about sex. And they're probably right. It seems like a lot of what people sing about it is and was drugs and sex but it's just funny to me how that was you know it was almost like this you know last night school i talk about social currency and it was almost like this social currency of i know what the songs are all about go talk to you want to know what the songs are about you're having trouble deciphering lyrics well johnny over there on the corner of the playground go to him he's the lyric consultant he'll tell you what all the songs are about well, every time I go to Johnny and I ask him what a song's about, he tells me it's about sex or drugs. Maybe he's right. Maybe Johnny's right. But yeah, that song, Cheap Trick, no doubt it's about sex. It's called He's a Whore. And there's a, there's a chant at one point where he's saying, I'm a whore. So maybe it's about him. It's weird to listen to music like that because it's a great fucking song. I mean, it, you can't be summer without Cheap Trick. And I almost feel cheap playing Cheap Trick. It seems too obvious to me. And that's a band that I feel like most people should be able to appreciate. It seems like, you know, and granted, they were were and are a very famous band. But that just seems like one of those bands that can break common ground with a lot of different people. At least I would hope so. They can break a lot of common ground with those songs about drugs and sex. But yeah, I'm not a promiscuous person myself. Never really have been. You know, I've kind of explored a weird sort of lechery in my artwork, but I've never been a very pr- uh, promiscuous per- promiscuous person. And, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to people who are. I'm not one of these people who thinks people should be ashamed for being that way. But it's interesting how in sexuality, open sexuality being much more accepted, and as these movements have pushed to, you know, anti-slut shaming and all of that, there's almost this weird thing where it's like, if you were to, like, for me to say, like, I'm not a promiscuous person, and I don't value that, people would think you're, like, shaming people who do that. It's once again the preach-what-you-need dilemma, where I speak about what works for me, and I found that, you know, I don't think you should like only have sex on holidays or something, but I think that there should be something special about it. And, you know, maybe that's a luxury that I can uh, decide on. Maybe that's my, that's, you know, maybe that's a luxury to me because I'm just not as focused on it. I'm not as preoccupied with sex. Maybe I have a lower sex drive. Maybe I have this or that. I don't know. I'm still a really aggressive person. And, you know, it's like I, I'm, I can't not look at a certain type of woman if I'm out in public. I can't not, like, glance politely. You know what I mean? I still have all of that. But it's just, I guess, the reality of it and the idea of being like, I'm a man. I got to fuck everything. Or, you know, I'm, an, I'm a new, you know, I'm an independent woman. I got to fuck everything. You know, all of that is just foreign to me. And if that's what you do, do it, you know, literally do it in every sense of that word. But it's just not something for me. Uh, and what that means, I don't know. Uh, it, actually, it actually doesn't bother me. I think it, at points in my life when I was younger, I think I thought more like, well, yeah, you know, should I be like a much more like uh, cavalier, you know, type person? Should I like, you know, and it was just undue pressure, you know, un- unnecessary pressure. 
to put on myself. Uh, so it's at this point in my life, I'm just like, you know, whatever, you know, I, I find the idea of promiscuity very foreign and very, uh, unnecessary to my own existence. Um, but that's not to say those things don't have some value. I mean, obviously it all revolves around the idea of procreation and I'm not going to be one of these nerds who it's like, you just simulate in procreation. That's all. That's the only reason you like it. I'm not going to be one of these people who says like, that's the only component to human sexuality or the only reason to, uh, you know, do it. Or that's the only reason we want to, I don't know. I don't even, the thing is, it's, it's not a subject I even care enough about to research or any of that. You know, I'm not reading books by any sexologists, I'll tell you that. I just know what I know from my own experience and my own observation. And I also try to do things that I'm not going to regret. Like, that's been a, a core part of my life recently is saying, what are the things that when I do them, I never regret them? And what are the things that when... I do them, there's a high chance that I will regret them. And there's a lot of people who are very promiscuous who do regret a lot of what they do. A lot of the people they do. And maybe there's alcohol involved in that. That's obviously a big factor in, you know, like sexual regret and all that. But it's like I, you know, and, and you hear stories of sex addicts who are, you know, very miserable. You know, I don't know. It's so it's like I don't think there's necessarily any virtue one way or the, or the other. I don't think there's any virtue necessarily toward like being like I'm I'm just going to be totally celibate and, you know, sex is for stupid animals and, you know, that kind of attitude, which some people pick up. And like they pick up on that weird resentment. Uh, but uh, it's, I think the opposite also, you know, it's, it's a balance, I'm sure. You know, I think it's a balance. But cheap trick, he's a whore. They're not talking about me. That whole rant was just to let you know they're not talking about me. Uh, but, uh, you know, what we're going to have here is a trial by fire. We've already mentioned both of these things so far. We mentioned fire earlier. Uh, and once again, we're in this we territory. There's something about doing the every night to school night episodes opposed to night school where I'm like representing some sort of group that doesn't exist. We, uh, I'm going to play you. Uh, a song called Trial by Fire from a Seattle metal band from the 80s. And I think, I can't remember if they are members connected to more well-known bands. Another band who was kind of in the same scene was uh, Sanctuary, who had a really good demo in the 80s. And they later became, uh, oh, what the fuck are they called? I, I have to look this up because I won't remember. Um, I never do this, but I'm doing it. Um, but uh, the first band, though, Serpent's Night, great name. Really raw, great demo, and I feel the need to represent, you know, some kind of Seattle metal. It's like I'm from the Seattle area, and I don't have some particular Seattle pride or anything like that. Uh, but I, uh, I do think there's this undercurrent of Seattle '80s metal that was really good, just '80s heavy metal. It kind of veers into, you know, maybe some sort of hair metal in there. But it's I don't know. There's something kind of I think because it never blew up. Uh, at least this band, Serpent's Night, there's just something kind of cryptic and cool, which are qualities I like in music. Um, oh, the band that Sanctuary became was Nevermore, a band I never cared about. So I, I never cared about Nevermore. Never cared about Nevermore. I never more cared. Um, but uh, Sanctuary, they had a really good demo, and had this, it was the same guys, I believe, as... Uh, as Nevermore, but this has nothing to do with Nevermore that I can remember. Although it does remind me, speaking of Trial by Fire, because that's going to be the name of the first song in this Serpent's Night block, this block um, 
there was a story about some other 80s heavy metal band that someone told me once where, and I ended up looking it up later, and it was true, where this guy was the guitarist in some band, and I believe he was still a teenager, and his mom got him the wrong guitar for Christmas, so he killed her. You know, if anybody deserves to have a trial by fire, I think it's that guy. I think he's probably still in prison, hopefully. Uh, he finally got the guitar he wanted in prison. No, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember what band that was. You can look it up. Just look it up. I've already looked up one thing for this episode, and I feel disgusting. So anything else, you got to look up. But yeah, Serpent's Night, I'm going to play uh, two or three songs here. And uh, they just have a very memorable, and I feel like I talked about fire earlier. I talked about, you know, a trial of your peers, you know, a kangaroo court. And I guess that's one reason why we don't have these kangaroo courts or these just impromptu trials in our villages anymore. It's because, you know, trial by fire, it turns out, you know, wasn't too, uh, <laughs> wasn't too ethically sound. Just like killing your mom for giving you the wrong guitar. It's like the extreme version of your parent buying you the wrong color iPhone so you make a YouTube video breaking it. But that's even healthier than, you know, what that guy did, what this other guy did. But, yeah, we're going to play some Serpent's Night here, starting with Trial by Fire. To those cretins with chromosome damage, to those enemies of society, to those individuals who have taken a solemn vow to destroy our way of life, our way of being. But it was at that point that you understand that we've experienced similar circumstances. I had, for instance, five girls attempt to jump me one time, and it didn't work. I haven't been in a fight for a while, and because my boyfriend won't let me fight, but I used to fight once a week, maybe. <laughs> Not anymore, She's though. trouble a lot. Yeah, I used to get suspended all the time. I enjoyed doing it, though. <laughs> She was a grown woman, kids. And she had eyebrows drawn on with a pencil. I was going to tell her to grow some eyebrows. I, was I put there. some girl in the hospital. I got arrested just for She's still in the hospital now. This happened like a week ago. We were walking down the boardwalk. She sprayed me in the eyes with mace. So I beat her up. <laughs>
picture is snitches get stitches and end up in ditches. And how many times young men and women afraid to even go to their parent or parents, their guardians? Know that the code of the streets is you never rat anyone out. You never drop dime. You never snitch anybody out. Well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm probably the biggest snitch in America. I live each and every day. When I wake up, I hope I don't touch wood because then I know it's real good. And I live to eat the Parmesan cheese because I'm the biggest rat in America. I'll rat them out if they're members of the geriatric espresso sipping psychotic group of organized crime members known as La Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, the Black Hand. And I'll rat them out if they just stuck a tubi in your back and cop five out of your pocket. I live to rat out criminals because it's criminals that destroy our neighborhood. It's criminals that poison our way of life. And it's prisoners that we become because we are becoming paralyzed by fear by the criminals. So let me tell you something. You got any cheese out there? I'm ready to eat it. I'm ready to rat out criminals till the day I die. Are you hanging in there? You hanging? You hanging on? You hanging on? I went to that museum of death some years back in Los Angeles, and it was cool. I mean, it was very, I mean, I'm a very squeamish person. I'm interested in the psychology of, you know, murder, I guess, and murderers more than I am, you know, the actual act of it, the violent act. So I, it was very squeamish, but it was also an interesting place to go. But the owners were waiting near the exit door sipping wine as we were leaving and they were like how do you feel you know just out of nowhere i mean because you know the group that i was with we were just walking out like you know as if we were leaving the movie theater and uh, the owners were just like how do you feel sure makes you glad to be alive doesn't it and i was just like come on like i think it's cool they run that place i don't you know i, I might feel a little differently going there now opposed to then uh, but you know it just it was kind of cheesy and weird like sure makes you feel glad to be alive huh uh, but on that note, I'm going to be playing some uh, what I consider summer music, and I've been listening to this since the summer started, but uh, just classic death metal. You know, Morbid Angel makes me feel like I'm in Florida. You know, Autopsy makes me feel like I'm in California. Those bands make me feel like I'm on vacation, and we're at the tail end of this episode. I'm just going to play a couple more songs and, you know, kind of wind this thing down. Uh, but I do want to play a song from Autopsy Mental Funeral. Just, you know, one of my favorite uh, death metal bands by far, one of the true classics, you know, a band who uh, truly had their own sound. I mean, it's very organic, and they can go, they can cycle through different speeds, you know, just at will. You know, there's songs where you th it's very sludgy, you know, one of the slower death metal bands, and then it'll just go into some driving fast part, but not some super inhuman clinical blast beat, but just everything seems, every band member, seems to you know it's like something congealed together it's like some what you hear in like black sabbath original lineup and i i like different eras of black sabbath not just the original lineup but there nothing really captured that same almost like an organism you know i'm saying it's organic but what i'm really meaning is it's almost like the band members formed an organism and autopsy to me actually sounds like the album art of mental funeral they actually sound like some weird you know monstrous you know, a uh, mutant creature like that, just like faces popping out of muscles and who kn who knows what's going on in that. It's just, it's this mess of biology and I love that and I feel like they sound like that. Autopsy, when you strip away all of, you know, the death metal aspect, all of that, it just, to me, it sounds like a mess of human biology, but 
the soundtrack is played extremely well and is unique and fitting to what they were trying to express. Because the funny thing about Autopsy is there's they have a sense of humor, you know. And if and if you look at the Mental Funeral, uh, the record jacket, it's like a collage of them drinking and hitting like a five foot bong. You know, there's pictures like that. They're guys who enjoy life. I guess I don't know. I don't. I don't really know. They're guys who enjoy life. That's why I like them. There's guys who enjoy life. But uh, there is something very real and organic and, in that respect, serious to me about Autopsy's music. Even when, like, their topics are silly, you know, even when they're kind of like horror movie comic booky, you know, there's something to me that they were able to do. So I'm going to play them here, and it's, to me, representative of Summer.
what was your first date with my wife? Um, well, I didn't know it was our first date. It was just supposed to be a movie night uh, with friends, and none of my friends showed up except for her. Uh huh. So I would say this was romantic, but uh, the movie we had picked out for the night was The Exorcist. <laughs> Romant- it was her choice. <laughs> romantic first date. <laughs> I have a feeling this ain't what it's supposed to be. But I was half stung God. Remember, I had just woken up in bed. You know what it's like when you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Some of you have never woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning. So you're like half in the bag. And I'm in the back of that cab, and I'm trying to sort of wake up as quickly as possible. And all of a sudden, I said, hey, Mac, turn this hack around. And immediately at that point, I heard some ruffling up in front of the cab. Underneath the dashboard, unbeknownst to me, was a gunman. And the gunman popped up like a jack-in-the-box. And he put his backside on the dashboard. And all of a sudden, he had a 38 Special aimed at my three-piece set. And I'm not talking about the knife, the spoon, and the fork. Yeah, I think Alex Trebek has more charisma than Curtis Sliwa, 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 however you say his name. He's Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood, Curtis Sliwa, the guardian angel. Uh, But uh, I feel like Alex Trebek has a little more uh, organic charisma. He's just like Autopsy. Alex Trebek's a lot like Autopsy in that way, where he expresses himself very organically. And that was actually Alex Trebek who did that, like, raspy, ghoulish hiss at the end of that clip. And uh, if you haven't seen that actual episode, I mean, I don't know how you would go back and watch some Jeopardy episode from a few weeks ago. But it was funny because Trebek actually made this ghastly face and did what was basically, you know, like a, uh, a ghoulish rasp. So if you could hear that a second ago, that was Trebek himself. And he sounded like he had practice. He practices his ghoulish rasps in the mirror. And speaking of ghoulishness, we're going to play the last song of the episode, and that itself is not an example of ghoulishness, but I do consider the song somewhat ghoulish. Uh, There was a uh, pinball machine in the 80s, and the brand or the uh, whatever you call it, you know how they have pinball machine themes, you know, they have a... uh, Terminator 2 one here in town, they, you know, that era, there were all kinds of pinball machines, some of them based on movies and things that were popular at the time. Other times they were just their own thing. And I'm not a pinball guy. I never enjoyed playing. I never enjoyed watching. But I do think there's something cool about the machines themselves and just arcades and just that era of entertainment. And when I say entertainment, I mean like going out in the world and finding a pinball machine, coming across a pinball machine. That's cool. Uh, And this one was Black Knight 2000. It was the name of the pinball machine from the 1980s. So you have a weird little like this medieval thing, Black Knight, an evil medieval ghoulish knight. But with 2000 added, yet the machine was made in the 1980s. So it's like they were going for a futuristic element, but not really, because the knight himself is just purely medieval. Everything about it, except for the pinball machine itself, is supposed to be medieval. So I don't know where the 2000 comes in. Uh, but I, I saw a public access show, because if, you if you're haven't, if you not aware, a lot of great old footage has gotten uploaded to YouTube, like just random public access shows of teenagers messing around, a lot of people's camcorder footage. There's a lot of good stuff if you know how to look that type of stuff up and so much of it is just an element of chance of just you just have to have that scavenger mentality and you'll come across things now and again 
Uh, so I recommend looking up public access shows, just whatever else. There's a lot of odds and ends that have made their way. Uh, you know, I, I think that the internet is a great tool for having access to things that we might not otherwise have had access to and just seeing little things that were going on in the world in decades past, as well as what people are producing today, because some of that is interesting to me. But there's something about seeing like a public access show that was only in some little town many years ago and seeing that now, there's something special about that. I don't know what it is. Uh, but in one of these, I saw they were playing Black Knight 2000, and you could hear the theme song because some pinball machines play a song, you know, as you're playing. And the song got me. I'm like, oh, it's like an 80s metal song. It's it's got like a power metal sort of vibe, a good catchy chorus. And I was, of course, you know, pinball maniacs are all over the place. They're all over the internet. So I was able to pretty easily track down the song in question. I mean, they have pinball conventions, I learned. And I did find out that Black Knight 2000 is considered a desirable machine. And for good reason, you know, because even as a non-pinball enthusiast, I still find something alluring about Black Knight 2000. I mean, I'd play it just to hear the song over and over again. So this is going to be the theme from Black Knight 2000, a pinball machine, and it's going to be the last song of this here, July 31st, July summer, every night's a school night episode, a non-traditional episode. I feel like a lot of the music I played in this case wasn't too obscure, and it represented, you know, a, a selection of my taste, some of the things that I consider personal classics, other things that are just go-tos of mine in recent years, and... Uh, you know, I wasn't. It's not like the other show where I'm trying to highlight obscure songs and oddities so much as just kind of putting together a good playlist, a good consistent playlist uh, for this time of year, combined with some samples, of course. No, the truth is, all of the voices you heard on today's episode were of me. In the last, since the last every night to school night, my ability to mimic teenage girls from New Jersey has just grown immensely. And I've been recording them onto tape recorders. Uh, so that's why I was able to get the quality you heard in addition to the voices. So this is Black Knight 2000. And the Black Knight himself is going to speak.
This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this lovely land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this golden land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong land our home If I must fight I'll fight to make this land our own Until I die This land is mine